I'm not Trevor Barber, but I will still be reading scripture from Job uh, chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I'm still a little bit shaken from that $20 bill getting ripped up. And I hope that the rest of you don't submit your offerings in the same way. No. Thank you, Christiane, for a good story. Our uh, currency does say, in God we trust. But sometimes it's more of a motto than a fact. We uh, trust all the time, don't we? We trust our cars to take us from point A to point B. Until recently, we trusted our retirement vehicles to take us to that special day when work would cease. And now we all know that the new retirement age is about 106. (laughs) We trusted in our real estate until we watched its values plummet beyond our payments. Trust is hard to come by. Trust is something that we really need to have but it's hard to come by. And as we look at tools to help us survive really hard times, as we look at tools to help us live Christian lives, whatever the circumstances of our lives, as we look at these tools, uh, trust is going to be a very important one. Now, I'm going to be preaching over here today because the ship is listing so badly well, maybe I'll preach over here to kind of help balance it out. I don't know. Um, two weeks ago, I started this series, and I started it with a sermon called Defined by God. Some of you were here. We read Genesis 1, and we read 1 John 3. And we we came to the understanding that we were created by God redeemed by God and called children of God. And I reminded you of the genealogy, I think it's Luke, but it might be Matthew, in which it says, son of Adam, son of God, as it goes backward through the genealogy. And we use these little simple things to help us get our bearing again and understand what the ground of our very being is. The ground of our very being is God. In him we live and move and have our being. And that grounding defines us because we're not only living in him, we were created by him and we're destined to be with him. And he calls us his children. And so hopefully that keeps us in perspective and keeps us from taking those things that happen to us and around us from redefining our value and our worth and causing us to think in ways that are destructive. Last week, we moved another step. And I reminded you, based in creation and based in the Psalms, that the earth belongs to God and everything in it. 
that while we may uh, live, that life is something of a gamble, hold them or fold them, the earth is the Lord's. That it really doesn't, what we gain or lose doesn't define us. That we're a part of something bigger and that we don't, as God's children, own things, we steward them for him. And we pay attention to these things for him. And the question came up after church last week, which I'd just like to address briefly this week. So what happens when I don't do a good job of stewarding or when I don't do a good job of maintaining something that's God's? If it's God's car and I wreck it, what does that mean? If it's uh, God's investment for retirement and I don't invest wisely and I drop 40% with the market and everything else, what does that mean? And I thought about that for a while and I thought what it means is that we are humans in a state of, of fallenness but redeemed. What it means is that we see darkly now and that refers to our future and our lives And we make decisions, sometimes not even the best ones we could at the time, but we make them. And we move forward a step at a time. And God redeems in an ongoing way, not just in a past way. We don't have a tense for that in English. We don't have a way of communicating. It happens and it's ongoing. We have to use several words to get to that. But the Greek has a tense for that, that if we read the gospel story As it's written in the Greek, we would understand that it happened and it's ongoing forever. Aristopunctilier is the name for those of you who like really bizarre little facts. And this helps us know that the saving act of God is accomplished in Calvary and goes on forever. And so God continues to redeem that which is broken and that which is lost. God continues to make good. God continues to restore. And we're going to see that in our story today. The other side of this coin is the same thing as the Christian life. Just because we've received grace, and to us it's come freely, tremendous cost to Christ and to God, but to us it's come freely, does not mean then that we rush out and sin and sin and sin, that grace may abound all the more. The same principle would hold for stewardship. We are obligated as stewards to act as best as we can. But when something happens, the car gets totaled and the insurance isn't quite enough or uh, we've lost something in an investment or we've made an unwise purchase that we regret, Our obligation is just to continue to learn to be better stewards. Next time we'll have adequate insurance. Maybe we'll rethink or think twice or put a rule or a boundary on the way we purchase. Maybe we'll take the time to find an investment uh, coach or to read up on the stock market or to find ways to be out of it when we think it's going to eat us alive and in other investments that will hold steady. So those are the two sides of it. We're under obligation as stewards to do the best we can, and yet God's acts of redemption are not just past, they're ongoing into the future. Is that clear? 
So it's kind of like the Christian life 101 all the way through. Well, today we're going to look at another tool. In addition to the fact that our identity centers on being children of God, in addition to the fact that we don't actually own anything, and in in, in addition, now we're going to look at the matter of trust. There's a story, an ancient story of a man named Job. One we understand to be righteous from the story, but to whom terrible things happen. And in the framework of the story, we understand this to be a test on this man that God allows, but that Satan brings on. And the thinking of the people of the age is that if indeed you are righteous and have not offended the gods, then nothing bad should be happening to you. The fact that terrible things are happening to you must be an indicator that you've offended God. The fact that terrible things are happening to you must make you a great sinner. And for one to fall as far as Job has fallen must indicate some horrific deed on his part. For he goes from a obviously wealthy man it's not measured in 20s that have been ketchuped and washed and so forth but it's measured in camels and pairs of oxen and sheep and goats and children it's measured in generativity he's a nomadic man but he's a wealthy wealthy man you'd be very comfortable in his tent in the desert and everything is taken everything but his nagging wife and his three theologically sophisticated friends who like to spend their time pontificating on the sins he must have committed now bear in mind that these little trials are major trials, not little. These trials come to Job in a series ending with his own body being consumed in boils. Anybody here had a boil before? It's like a super zit. Only you, it, it, you can't drain it very easily. It leaves a horrific scar and they're very painful. And he's got these all over his body. All over his body. He just sits and with little clay shards from broken pots scratches these things, tries to break them open and drain them. It's the definition of misery. He he stinks. He's wasting away. His wife finds him repulsive. His children are dead. And his friends are telling him, you must have done something to offend God. You know, interestingly enough, this thought is not dead with the book of Job. I still pastor people, some of you, still believe that somehow you must have done something to offend God if something bad is happening to you. That somehow by virtue of being a believer, by being baptized, by being a Christian, by praying, that nothing terrible should happen in your life. And I'm so sorry to tell you that that is really just not the way it works. 
There is a making of all things new. There is a redemption. There is a day of joy that follows a night of sorrow. But we are not exempt in this life from pain and accident and suffering and death. We are not immune. And if we aren't prepared for that reality, if we aren't able to trust God in the midst of the darkness of the night, how shall we get through? How shall we get through? I would have you turn in your Bibles to Job. What Brennan read today in Job 1 was this. He's just heard the news of the death of his children and the collapse of his home. He gets up and in the Mideast style, he renders his garments useless. He tears them. He shaves his head. He probably put on sackcloth and ash, but he fell to the ground in an act of worship. It's a very, very important concept. Prostrate before the living God down on his face. And he says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, is this act an act of happiness? No. Is this act an act of extreme grief? Absolutely. And in his extreme grief, is Job one to blame God? No. Now David will. David's much, uh, I, I, I like, my, most of us are more like David than Job, I think. Where are you, God? Oh, you know, he, he just really uh, expresses himself. He's all over the spectrum there. But Job does not sin in this case by blaming God. In an act of worship, he praises God. In a moment of incredible grief and loss, he is bowed down in grief. But he lets God know, I came into this world with nothing and I can take nothing with me. You give, you take, blessed be your name. I don't understand it. I have no way of getting my head or my heart around the losses I've just taken. I don't, I don't, grief is too small of a word in a concept. But I'll worship you. I'll worship you. 
This was consistent with his response when he lost other things too. Job goes on after having conversations with his friends. And I want today, we don't have a ton of time, but I want today to turn to Job 13. Job in chapter 12 begins responding to Zophar from chapter 11, who is mocking him, actually. And Job says this. I'm going to read most of the chapters so you get the language of what he's saying. My eyes have seen all this, he's saying to Zophar. My ears have heard and understood it, what you know, I also know, Zophar. I am not inferior to you. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. If only you would be altogether silent. For you, that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the plea of my lips. Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak lies or deceitfully for him? Will you show him partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Would it turn out well if he examined you? Could you deceive him as you might deceive men? He would surely rebuke you if you secretly showed partiality. Would not his splendor terrify you? Would not the dread of him fall on you? Your maxims and proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Keep silent now and let me speak. Then let me come to what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, I will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words and let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and I will die. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me and I will answer or let me speak and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me the offense of my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a windblown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. So man wastes away like something rotten, like a garment eaten by moths. Hope you're not too depressed after that. But it's a wonderful little exchange. I love the way he fights back at his friends. 
this beaten down man, this miserable man, this man of boils and pain, this man of the shaved head and the sackcloth and ashes, this man of the wife who despises him. I love how he asks. You see, he too understands these terrible things to be coming from God. And while I think our theology has evolved a bit, and thanks to the book of Job, we see Satan as the one acting to hurt and destroy behind the scenes. At some level, we all talk to God when things go wrong, don't we? We all want to know. And Job has racked his brain. He's tried to think of everything he's done wrong. He's tried to think what he might have done to bring this calamity on himself. And he can find nothing. And his friends can find nothing except his pride at not being able to confess that he's done something terrible. You will find that accusation. And in the middle of this long defense that he gives, several chapters, is this phrase... Yet though he slay me, will I trust him? Wow. This isn't a passive act Job is talking about. This isn't, you cannot translate this as far as I know into, I will trust him under the grave. This is active Yet though God take my life, slay me, kill me, I will trust in him. Wow. You know the story, I hope, if you haven't, it's 40 chapters and it's worth reading. But the story takes us, in the end, to the salvation of Job. There's a restoration And while we could argue that there are certain problems theologically along the way, my point for today's purposes is to let you see this in light of the salvation story. There's Eden, Eden lost in this terrible period of darkness, a sacrifice in which Christ gives his own life that we might live, and a redemption and a restoration ultimately to the Edenic state, the place where we live in the garden again, where we are with God again. And Job is restored at the end of this story. New herds, more children. His health is returned to him. His wealth is returned to him. But in the middle of the night... The blackest part of the story, his thought is, yet if he slay me, I will trust him. And this gets Job through. I mean, I don't know how to explain this other than to say how easy would it have been in his own mind to have cursed God and died. How easy would it have been for him in the darkness of night to have given up and said, I have nothing left to live for. How easy it would have been for him to lose all hope and all perspective. Yet, though he slay me, I will trust him. Here's another passage in Job 19. 
that speaks loudly. Again, he's replying his friends, Bildad this time. And he says in verse, excuse me, 25, I know that my Redeemer lives. Jesus hadn't even come yet. And in this ancient statement is a statement of faith. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my sin has been, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Do you hear that statement of faith? That trust? I like the King James actually in this, oddly enough, the very best. The worms destroy this body. Isn't that graphic? You know, we still use, uh, what are they, leeches and uh, different things to uh, clean up sores and restore blood flow to areas in medicine today. But worms usually are associated with decay and death. And he says, though worms have destroyed this body, yet in my very flesh will I see God. Why? Because I know my Redeemer lives. You have a Redeemer who lives. And if we, like Job, can say, even if worms eat this body, I'm going to see him in my very flesh. I'm going to see him. That is Oh, this matter of trust, exemplified, it's hope. Job dares to trust God in the darkness of his night. And he's delivered on the other side. And our deliverance may not be in a lifetime, it may be in the life yet to come. But we too ought to be able to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And even if I die, and even if my body's eaten by worms in my flesh, I'm going to see him. I'm going to see him. Brennan Manning puts it this way. Christ wanted your trust so much that it was worth going to Calvary to earn it. And if you think about that, that's a fabulously true statement. Because trust was broken when man believed a lie about God. When humankind said, you know what? We don't trust the living God. Maybe this serpent who speaks is telling us the truth. It's not about an apple. It's not about the made-up thing Eve says about touching it. It's not about the temptation. It's about trust. Adam and Eve decide that they, despite the goodness of God and despite his warnings, trust the serpent's voice and not the master's voice. They trust the deceiver and not the maker. 
And all we like sheep have gone astray. Each our own way. And Christ so coveted that relationship of openness and trust that he went to Calvary that you might have that trust restored. That we might see once and for all that despite the bitterness of life and the pain of life, Christ has joined us in that bitterness and pain, even death, and that he is the one who redeems. And we can say with This one who prefigured Christ, Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall one day stand upon the earth. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I'll see God. And so our Maker, our Redeemer, and our King teach us to trust that we may live in confidence that not only one day will you stand upon the earth but that regardless of what happens to us in this life we shall see you thank you Jesus Amen